Hello everyone, I'm Professor Catherine Walby from the Department of Sociology here at the University of Sydney and it is my great pleasure to introduce Professor Nicholas Rose uh, who will be speaking tonight. Now Nicholas is the Professor of Sociology and Head of the Department of Social Science, Health and Medicine at King's College in London. He is the founder and co-editor of Bias Societies, an interdisciplinary journal for social studies of the life sciences and indeed uh, we are co-editors on that journal now. He's published very widely on the social and political history of the human sciences, on the genealogy of subjectivity, on the history of empirical thought in sociology, on law and criminology, and on changing rationalities and techniques of political power. His most recent books include The Politics of Life Itself, Biomedicine, Power and Subjectivity in the 21st Century, Governing the Present, and most recently, Neuro, the, the New Brain Sciences and the Management of the Mind. He's a member of the Steering Committee of the Society and Ethics Division of the Human Brain Project, which is a European flagship project, and is responsible for their Foresight Laboratory. He is the lead investigator from King's in several large funded collaborations with Imperial College London to develop research and capacity in synthetic biology. He was the chair of the European Neuroscience and Society Network, funded by the European Science Foundation, and has worked in various capacities with the Academy of Medical Science and the Wellcome Trust, and with the Royal Society, where he is currently a member of the Science Policy Advisory Group. So Nicholas has been doing a great deal of work around the intersection of neurology, neurobiology, psychiatry, brain mapping, and those kinds of fields. And, uh, Tonight he's going to be talking about mental life in the metropolis, urban brains, urban lives, and the embodiment of urbanicity. So please welcome Nicholas Rose. Ah, it's, it's always so, uh, reminds me how ancient I am when I get these uh, get these introductions. Um, and for those of you who know my early work. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a departure, but I hope I'm going to be able to, to make the links. Thanks very much to, to Catherine for inviting me here to, to Sydney, and thanks to you all for coming out on such a cold and wet, wet evening, uh, not quite Sydney weather. So, for about the last 30 years, I've really only been working on one question, which is what kinds of creatures do we think we are, us contemporary human beings, how have we come to think of ourselves in this way, and with what consequences for how we are governed by others and how we govern ourselves. And over the course of that 30 years, I've traced what I have argued to be the emergence of psychological notions of uh, human subjectivity and the ways in which those have been bound up with different ways of governing ourselves and governing others. More recently, I've looked at the rise of somatic ideas about who we are and what we could be and how we should be managed in the book that Cathy mentioned, The Politics of Life Itself. And most recently, I've studied the rise of the neurosciences and asked whether or not we're seeing the emergence of something like a neurobiological complex for understanding and managing uh, human beings in contemporary societies. So if uh, I'm right in thinking that our ways of understanding ourselves are changing, as I'm going to suggest to you uh, in a moment, what implications does that have for the 
a vocation of the social and human sciences, their social and political vocation. I suppose I have spent most of my time over the last uh, 30 years or so analyzing the rules of the game by which human beings govern others and govern themselves. But uh, since I moved to King's, and probably part of the reason why I moved to King's to found this new department, which has a strong focus on global health and the social determinants of ill health, has been because I'm of the view that, for me at least, it's time to move from analyzing the rules of these games to engaging in some way or other with their stakes. Um, an argument that's also been made recently uh, by Didier Fassan in a very interesting paper called Another Politics of Life is Possible. So the last time I was here in this, uh, in this uh, part of the world, I gave two papers. I gave a paper um, at uh, the University of Western Sydney called The Human Sciences in a Biological Age, in which I argued that uh, it was necessary for the human sciences to begin to think differently about their subjects uh, in the light of developments within the life sciences and the neurosciences. The human sciences, I argued in that paper, had to go beyond simply commentary and critique about the rise of the life sciences, uh, deconstructing them, seeing their connections with regimes of power and, uh, and uh, regimes of finance to actually taking seriously the kinds of arguments they make about the sorts of human subjects that we are. And the other paper that I gave, and I believe that was the paper that I gave when I was here in this uh, lecture theatre a couple of years ago, was outlining the argument that I made with my colleague Joel Abirached about the rise of the neurosciences, arguing that increasingly human beings were being understood and coming to understand themselves in terms of something to do with their brains. It wasn't that we were becoming brains, or it wasn't that we were merely our brains, but somehow the brain and arguments about the brain were playing a crucial role in the way in which we were beginning to investigate and indeed intervene on human subjectivity. So the work I'm going to talk about today really arises pretty directly out of those two uh, arguments. Um, I was uh, fortunate enough with two colleagues of mine, Ilana Singh and Des Fitzgerald, uh, to uh, win a competition that our research council uh, uh, mounted a couple of years ago uh, for transformative ideas in the social sciences. Um, and our transformative idea, which we pitched to the ESRC, our research council, was this. It was arguing that perhaps we needed a new sociology for a new century, and perhaps we could begin to understand what that was by thinking about the relationships between sociology and neuroscience, in particular through a study of mental life and the city. Um, well, we were fortunate enough to win this competition, and we founded at King's what we call the Human Brain Lab, uh, the, sorry, the Urban Brain Lab, precisely to explore this relationship between mental life and urban existence. And it's a very empirical project uh, that we are endeavoring to carry out here, an empirical project of two sorts. One, an investigation of whether it's possible for social scientists and neuroscientists to work together across that divide. 
And secondly, whether it's possible to do that around a very specific empirical question about mental life in the metropolis. So that's what I'm going to talk about today, and I should emphasize that this paper derives from the work of our Urban Brain Lab. It derives in particular from the work of Ilana Singh and from a great deal of empirical work uh, undertaken by Des Fitzgerald. So I'd like to acknowledge them both at the beginning. I'm drawing very heavily on a paper that's currently under review in the uh, British Journal of Sociology. Um, and um, although this is a collective, uh, a collective endeavor, I take full responsibility for the many mistakes which I'm sure you're going to point out to me in the uh, question time afterwards. Let's begin with the 19th century. In the 19th century, the question of urban existence uh, became very salient to intellectuals in a number of different ways. Uh, in the middle of that century, Henry Mayhew was one of those intrepid urban explorers who took the lessons of the urban explorers of the dark continent of Africa and tried to apply them in understanding his own city. In his classic book, London Labour and the London Poor, which explored the dark continent of London and tried to characterize the form of life of its inhabitants, of the prostitutes, of the street vendors, of the rag pickers, and so on. Although Mayhew was very concerned with their forms of life, he wasn't much concerned with their internal mental states. There was another approach which was concerned with the internal mental states of the inhabitants of the city, and that was the growing argument across the second half of the 20th century about degeneration. The argument was that individuals were moving from the countryside into the city where they get caught, got caught up in the swirling and corrupting miasmas of urban life in prostitution, in drug addiction, and alcoholism, uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, irreligion, uh, and that those uh, uh, corrupt uh, environmental influences uh, led inescapably to a kind of degeneration of mental and moral capacities. And that argument about degeneration, uh, which was uh, perhaps the primary argument of insanity in urban environments in the late 19th century, led in a complicated way that I'm not going to talk about today to the rise of eugenics in the 20th century. But that's not really uh, what I'm going to be concerned about today. I'm going to be concerned really with another way of thinking about the city. So in the middle of the 19th century, the poet Charles Baudelaire was entranced with the experience of those who had moved from the countryside into the city, with the move from the tranquility of the rural, with its regular rhythms, with its stable habits, with its change of the seasons, one after the other, after the other, year after year after year, seeing a few people who you knew well, and seeing those people for the whole of your life from when you were born till when you died, to what seemed to be happening to him in the city, the ephemeral, the transient, the fleeting experience of what it was like in those urban environments, what he called modernity or modernity. 
And others, too, were also fascinated with what was happening in the uh, urban environment where there was a disintegration of coherent experience, where people were encountering hundreds of people that they had never, ever seen before, masses in the crowd, uh, full of disjointed impressions of noise, of images, of smells, of jostling. Uh, Walter Benjamin, in many of his works, was uh, particularly concerned with those experiences. And every sociologist will know uh, this uh, 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 piece by Georges Zimmel called The Metropolis and Mental Life, from which I've taken the title of this paper. This is what Zimmel says, the deepest problems of modern life flow from the attempt of the individual to maintain the independence and individuality of his existence against the weight of historical heritage and the external culture and techniques of life. This antagonism represents the most modern form of the conflict which primitive man must carry on with nature for his own bodily existence. The psychological foundation on which the metropolitan individuality is erected is the intensification of emotional life due to the swift and continuous shift of external and internal stimuli. Man is a creature whose existence is dependent on differences, lasting impressions, the slightness in their differences, the habituated regularity of their course and contrast between them consume, so to speak, less mental energy than etc., etc., etc. And he goes on to say um, the uh, sensuous nature of modern life in the city stimulates the nerves to their utmost reactivity until they finally can no longer produce any reaction at all. And he goes on to think about what the consequences are of these fleeting, ephemeral impressions on individuals that tear the individual around in urban, in urban existence. Sociologists, too, in the first half of the 20th century were concerned with those problems of urban existence, but perhaps uh, in a slightly different way. But nonetheless, they seemed to chart, and they sought to chart the forms of life and the modes of experience across urban space in a way that is similar to Zimmel, similar to Benjamin, similar even to Baudelaire, not making that fundamental distinction which seems so salient, so almost automatic to the social scientists today, which is to say that on the one hand, there are studies of human beings' social existence, and on the other hand, there are studies of their organic and vital existence, and these two belong to two distinct domains of knowledge. As we've seen with Baudelaire, as we've seen with Benjamin, as we've seen with Zimmel, that distinction did not obsess the early intellectuals of urban life, and it did not obsess the early sociologists of the city in the the early half of the 20th century. The city was architectural and spatial, but it was also physical and mental and spiritual And with all its problems, one saw the emergence there of a naturalistic and a vital sociology. Perhaps it was in the 1960s that the social scientists in general, and sociology in particular, turned away from these naturalistic and functionalist accounts of city life and of suffering in the city. They turned away not from the city itself, They were happy to chart the distribution of insanity, of uh, poverty, of uh, all sorts of social ills across urban life, 
but they were unconcerned with mechanisms. Indeed, they were hostile or ignoring towards psychological and biological uh, explanations. They regarded them as individualistic and reductionistic. It's not to say that sociologists didn't have conceptions of the human individuality, but they remained largely implicit. <clears throat> now, my colleagues and I understand, as well as anybody, the opposition to biological and naturalistic forms of explanation and the reason why those occurred, but we think that we are potentially within a transformative moment and we need to grasp hold of that opportunity. As I'll try and argue, biology is seeking to break with asocial reductionism. Indeed, it's being forced by the science itself to have a different view of the nature of the relationship between the organism and its milieu. And as those of you who are from sociology uh, will know, the social and the human sciences themselves are beginning to flirt with a number of vitalisms. Feminist materialism, a kind of return to the materiality of the body, the popularity of affect theory, a kind of new topography of the affective forces, often non-conscious, that shape human relationality. But I want to argue that if we're going to pursue this project, we need to have a new relationship to the truth discourses of the life sciences. Beyond speculation about the kinds of creatures we think we are, beyond a sort of hermeneutics of suspicion where we direct our gaze of critique towards the life sciences, to a recognition that social relations leave measurable traces, biological and neurobiological traces, in the individual from the moment of conception, and that these enable and constrain human action. So you may be wondering why we gave our uh, approach to the Research Council that uh, immodest uh, title, A New Sociology for a New Century. And we were rather taken with a, a paper by uh, um, the uh, microbiologist Carl Wurze, uh, written in two published in 2004, called A New Biology for a New Century. And as you'll see in this quote here, which I won't read out to you, uh, Wurze argues that it's time for biology to leave its molecular reductionist reformulation of the nature of life and choose between two paths, either continue on that reductionist track or break itself free and uh, move towards an emphasis on a holistic, nonlinear, emergent biology. So when we ask a new sociology for a new century with a new relationship with the life sciences, we hope for a new conversation with the life sciences not one where we abandon our critical faculties. There's much to be criticized, as I hope we'll see uh, later on in my talk. But criticism isn't the same as critique. Criticism means working out in rather a lot of detail exactly what is wrong and seeking to engage in it, to transform it. And as I said, although there are relationships between the social sciences and human sciences and the arguments from the life sciences today, many of them remain at a rather abstract level. We wanted an empirical project, 
an empirical project which we thought was rather appropriate given we live at a moment when over half the world's population lives in those uh, environments that we call cities in Sao Paulo, in Mumbai, in the banlieues of the European cities, etc., etc. So that's our project, Mental Life in the Metropolis. Right, that's the rather lengthy preamble. <clears throat> So this section is called Madness and the Metropolis. In the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, um, as I've already indicated, there was a concern with the consequences of immigration to the cities. Immigration of two sorts, migration from the countryside to the city and migration from foreign parts into the cities of Europe and in particular the cities of North America. From the countryside, uh, it appeared that contrary to expectations, it was not the countryside that seemed to generate insanity, but it was urban existence that generated insanity. Sociologists across the first half of the 20th century carried out numerous surveys of the rates of admission to insane asylums, um, in, the, in particular in the United States, and they argued that the rate of admission to insane asylums from urban inhabitants was probably twice as great as that from rural inhabitants. And that led to a lengthy uh, debate about the virtues of the rural versus the vices of the urban. The argument was that the city, with its noise, with its viciousness, with its combinations of individuals and their, uh, their concentration in certain uh, spaces of crime, of prostitution, of, uh, of uh, corrupt milieus and so on, actually was productive of insanity itself. It was urban existence that itself accounted for the excess of insanity uh, uh, over and above rural existence. Secondly, there was a debate about the implications of immigration. And this was particularly the case in the United States, where there was a great deal of concern led uh, uh, in part, but not accidentally, by Francis Amazo Walker, who was the director of the U US Census, about the, about the consequences of the immigration of those uh, from Southern and Eastern Europe, or what Walker uh, um, rather nicely described as beaten men from beaten races. That is to say, the Irish, the Southern European, and the Jews. And these Irish, these Southern European and the Jews, were consistently found in surveys to be uh, overrepresented in the populations of insane asylums. And Walker, who was certainly a eugenicist, argued that these were not just beaten men from beaten races, but they were bringing the curse of degeneration to the United States. From our point of view, I mean, there's a long uh, and rather interesting and, and rather uh, uh, disturbing uh, a story about how that kind of argument led to the passage of the National Origins Act of 1924 in the United States, which sought to restrict immigration from those areas, um, and which uh, was actually rather favorably looked at by the racial hygienists in, in Germany, who wished that they could do the same kind of thing. Uh, but from, our, from the point of view of this, uh, this particular talk, what that kind of 
of concern led to was a great uh, deal of effort to chart the makeup of the urban population, chart the makeup of that population across urban space because it was argued that these beaten men from beaten races were concentrated in certain areas of the city where they manifested their pathological heredity, that urban life was a kind of magnet for those degenerates. Now, amongst the many uh, um, uh, uh, groups that took up that challenge, uh, perhaps the most well-known were the Chicago School. Uh, who uh, uh, engaged in mapping a whole series of social phenomena across urban space using, uh, in the end, this concentric argument about uh, 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 zoning in, in the urban that I've, uh, uh, that I've indicated there. In a classic state by, statement by Park and Burgess, they say this in 1925, the city is not merely a physical mechanism and an artificial construction. It's involved in the vital processes of the people who compose it. It's a product of nature. Now this argument, this quote from, uh, from uh, 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 Park and Burgess was actually cited uh, on the... Uh, first pages of a study by Farris and Dunham published in 1939. It was a study of just, uh, just under 35,000 cases of mental disorder admitted to state hospitals and private sanatoriums in Chicago between 1922 and 1934. And this is what Farris and Dunham say. Causes of mental disorder, as plotted by residents of patients previous to admission, decrease from the center to the periphery of the city in more or less the same distributive pattern as poverty, unemployment, juvenile delinquency, adult crime, suicide, family desertion, and so on. Quotes, paranoid schizophrenia is correlated with percentage of hotel residents and lodgers, catatonic schizophrenia with percentage of foreign-born and Negroes, manic depressive psychosis with median monthly rentals, alcoholic psychoses with the percent of population on relief, dementia paralytica with distribu distribution of vice resorts, senile psychoses with percentage of home ownership, etc., etc., etc. So Ferris and Dunham have a pretty grim view of the city. And I want to be rather critical of the way in which they do that charting. But nonetheless, there's just one point that I think is worth making about Ferris and Dunham. That these analyses of insanity in the city were linked to a fundamentally vitalist conception of the relationship between humans and their environment. So we can, I think, uh, uh, smile or be horrified by the way in which they chart those distributions, but nonetheless, this uh, uh, premise on which they work, I think, uh, is significant for us. This is what they say. The human mind is built on and is never independent of a physiological basis. It's also a product of a process of social interaction. Mentality, abilities, behavior are all achievements of the person developed in a history of long interaction with his surroundings, both physical and social, including influences from the community at large to persons and from persons to intimate friends, as well as paths of physiological communication, including sense organs, nerve paths connecting with centers, all supported by sufficiently normal functioning of many parts of the body, including including glands, muscles, etc. 
So despite their rather grim view of the city, like the intellectuals in the second half of the 19th century that I cited a moment ago, what we have here is a refusal of that distinction that is so uh, um, uh, natural or became so natural to the social sciences, a refusal of that distinction between the vital organization of the human body and its existence and experience in its milieu. Well, that kind of argument perhaps lasted up until the 1960s. The 1960s, you might say, were the end of the beginning of that kind of vitalist social science. The arguments that Farris and Dunham made were highly criticized. And what became the most uh, popular and the widely accepted explanation was not that the urban itself led to insanity and all these different forms of pathology, but rather the thesis that became termed urban drift. That is to say that why were there so many people who were insane and in various kinds of problematic states in concentrated in certain areas of the city, not because of what the city did to them, but because they drifted to those areas of the city. The urban drift argument made in the UK most strongly by a psychiatrist at the Institute of Psychiatry, uh, part of my own uh, institution these days, John Wing, the urban drift argument came to really erase and efface those other vitalist kinds of explanations of what was going on in the city. As I said, it wasn't that social scientists weren't concerned about city life. But what they did was to chart the distribution and the determinants of undesirable social and health conditions. They turned them into a series of quantified and measurable demographic characteristics. They correlated uh, the urban, uh, various characteristics of urban existence with these uh, particular social pathologies. And correlation was uh, explanation enough. Correlation between an urban characteristic and a psychiatric diagnosis was explanation enough without wondering about that question of mechanism. And to the extent that there was a relationship between sociology and psychiatry, that moved very rapidly from alliance to critique. Not sociology in psychiatry, but soci sociology of psychiatry. Whereas in the early part of the 20th century, sociology and psychiatry, that seemed to indicate the very possibility of, a, of, a, of a, an intellectual and a social and a political alliance between those two ways of thinking. It now seemed that sociology and psychiatry illustrated precisely the reverse, that there was a kind of unbridgeable gap between a social explanation and a biopsychological explanation. Well, what I want to suggest to you um, in the second half of this talk is that perhaps, as I said at the beginning, we are at a transformative moment in thinking about the relationship between the vital and its milieu. And the phrase that is used again and again in thinking about this relationship is, how does experience get under the skin?
Well, I put uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson up there uh, for no particular reason, apart from the fact that if you Google under the skin these days, you have to get through quite a lot of Scarlett Johansson and Michelle Faber before you get to the argument that I want to make. But here's another under the skin. It's a project at uh, uh, University College London about how life gets under your skin. There's a report here by uh, one of very many uh, researchers entitled, How Do Early Life Experiences Get Under the Skin? An article on the uh, right-hand side of your screen, which we'll talk about in a little, bit, a little bit later, by Steve Hyman, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health and uh, later provost of Harvard University and now director of the Broad Institute, uh, a very perceptive thinker, in my, in my view, called How Adversity Gets Under the Skin. And the pictures of the rodents there we will come back to uh, because he's citing the work of Michael Meany that I'm going to talk about in a, in a moment. This under the skin argument, this how life gets under the skin, it seems to me encapsulates that transformation, that transformative moment in the life sciences that seems to me to offer the opportunity of a new uh, conversation. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of those transformations. And forgive me, those of you who are neuroscientists around the room, uh, if this is inescapably going to be uh, extremely uh, schematic. So what are these transformations? There's a tra been a transformation, a fundamental transformation in genomics, uh, uh, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, in the way in which the relationship between the environment and the genome is understood now fashionably encapsulated in the uh, program of research called epigenetics, which looks at genomics beyond the genetic program. There's an increasing interest in plasticity, in particular neuroplasticity. There's an argument about neurogenesis, about how new nerve cells are created in the human brain in response to environmental inputs and a whole series of other developments which blur that fundamental distinction between the biological and the social, which do indeed seem to provide some pathways for understanding how experience gets under the skin. Interestingly, each of these ways of thinking very rapidly became linked to strategies of government, to modes of intervention. Novel neurobiological accounts of social problems, interventions informed by neurobiological expertise, new ways of governing others and governing ourselves via our plastic brains. Now, if I was the kind of person I was 15 or 20 years ago, I would be content with describing those new modes of governing. But now I think perhaps it's time, as I said right at the beginning, to move from describing the rules of the game to engaging rather more directly with their stakes. So let me say a little bit about some of those developments, beginning with the argument about plasticity. Well, those who work on the brain have long argued that the brain is plastic. That is to say that the brain changes over time in response to environmental inputs. The first way of thinking about that was in relation to nerve cells, to neurons, and the connections between them, encapsulated in a slogan made famous for every biologist by Donald Hebb, what fires together, wires together. 
When two neurons are stimulated and fire together, they form a connection. And once they form that connection, those connections form circuits, and those circuits fire together again and again and again, providing a mechanism by which experience is inscribed in the neuronal plasticity. That's been recognized since the late 19th and early 20th century. Perhaps the next uh, uh, significant development was about brain repair, brain repair after stroke. Well, there were many uh, uh, researchers involved in analyzing uh, brain repair uh, after stroke, but the person I've chosen to put up on the slide there is Paul Bakirita, who did pioneering work on neurorehabilitation after stroke and showed that although an area of the brain might be ablated, might be lesioned, might be damaged or destroyed altogether by the experience of stroke, the brain was plastic. It was functionally adaptable and changed in response to injury or functional demand. And by retraining, one could begin to establish and re-establish function that had been lost because other areas of the brain were able to take on from those areas of the brain that were damaged. This kind of argument got developed even further uh, in the uh, notion of cortical uh, remapping. Now, cortical remapping was actually a rather uh, controversial development. Uh, Edward Taub there, who I've shown on the screen, uh, did some classic and very controversial experiments with monkeys, the so-called Silver Spring monkeys which involved restricting the movements of those monkeys and uh, enforcing other areas of the brain to take on the, the problem of control of their, uh, of, of their, of their, of their functioning. Um, that led to uh, perhaps the first big animal rights campaign, and I believe the foundation of the animal rights organization, PETA, that's a little slogan from them, uh, and a very big uh, court case in which uh, Edward Taub was, uh, uh, was charged with cruelty uh, to his uh, Silver Spring monkeys. Uh, he uh, was found not guilty, and he went on uh, to turn that argument that you could remap uh, the cortex, you could remap the brain by training into a program which he called constraint-induced movement therapy to rehabilitate those whose brains have been damaged uh, by stroke or other kinds of, uh, uh, of illnesses. Mike Merzenich, again, uh, carried out some uh, similar arguments about cortical remapping, uh, but he is now perhaps best known for uh, this uh, institute here, uh, the Brain Training Institute, Brain HQ as it's called, uh, which has a program of uh, training people's brains in order to increase their intellectual acuity. This argument about brain uh, plasticity and about brain rewiring very rapidly moved into the popular domain, and no doubt uh, you have uh, read some of these things. Perhaps you have even tried to rewire your brain for love uh, or harness neuroscience for your personal growth through brain plasticity. The point I want to make here be between the basic neuroscience, the commercial exploitation of it, and the popular representation of it is that behind all that, I think there is something uh, significant which we need to take away, which is the argument that the brain is perhaps the most modulatable open organ of the body, constantly open and transforming in relation to environmental stimuli. 
Second area where I think it's uh, uh, something interesting is happening is in genomics. Now, uh, geneticists have always talked about gene-environment interactions and always known that the consequences of your genomic inheritance depend upon environmental triggers. But recently, that argument about gene-environment interactions is being trained in a small but I think very significant way. This is work done by Caspi, uh, Avshalom Caspi and Terry Moffat, actually based on a, a longitudinal study in New Zealand, the Dunedin study. Um, and I don't have time to go into the uh, details of that. But the significant thing about what they say, perhaps encapsulated by this little quote, mental disorders, they say, have well-documented environmental causes. That is to say, they recognize that the causes of most disorders are actually environmental. But why do some people who are exposed to an environmental pathogen develop mental disorders, whilst others don't? How can two people experiencing the same environment develop very different disorders? How does an environmental pathogen get under the skin to alter the nervous system and generate mental disorders? So the search is on for the mechanism by which environmental experiences transform the genome itself or transform gene expression. And the most popular way of characterizing this is in terms of epigenetics. It's long been known, especially by uh, anyone who's done a basic biology, that uh, every cell in the body contains exactly the same genomic complement. So how do different cells in the body differentiate? It's because different genes are activated, different gene sequences are activated in different cells. So clearly, something goes on in the cell to activate or deactivate gene expression. That process of activating or deactivating the expression of the genome is now largely termed epigenetics. And in some very interesting experiments, and these are probably the ones that are, have had most uh, salience, Michael Meany and his group uh, in, uh, working in Canada have argued that early experience, they're working here with rodents, and you can see some of these rodents here, that early experience of those rodent pups changes the expression of their gene, which changes their conduct and behavior uh, over the course of their lifetime, changes the way in which they themselves relate to their pups, changes that second generation of pups conduct over their lifetime, changes the way in which that second generation of pups uh, 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 deal with their own offspring, etc., etc., etc. Hence the title of this uh, um, uh, article in Nature, um, Nature magazine, that is to say, not in their nature, but in their nurture, that is to say, the forms of nurturing the forms of experience, especially in the very early years, transform in some fundamental way the brain by transforming the expression of the genes that are, that are involved. So-called epigenetic regulation of different receptors in the human brain. Very rapidly, Mike Meany and his group were arguing that these kinds of uh, mechanisms could be used to explain the consequences of early adverse experience like child abuse. Another mechanism by which environment gets under the skin. The third of these mechanisms is neurogenesis. 
It had widely been thought for, uh, uh, for decades, actually, that uh, no new uh, nerve cells were formed in the human brain after the very early years. But in some and there were quite good reasons for uh, holding on to that dogma. But in some uh, very elegant experiments by Elizabeth Gould and her colleagues, uh, she discovered that actually neurogenesis, that is to say the creation of new nerve cells, continued right through adulthood. So it wasn't the case that every glass of wine that you drank or every cigarette that you smoked simply killed your nerve cells and it was downhill all the way. New nerve cells could be produced in the adult mammalian brain and whether or not and the extent to which they were produced depended on or was inhibited by environmental factors. And again, very rapidly, I won't read out this quote here, uh, Elizabeth Gould and her colleagues began to argue that these uh, uh, analyses had major social implications because they helped understand the way in which early experience, in this case early experience of parenting, shaped and reshaped the brain of the developing child. <clears throat> Enough. The point that I'm trying to make in a rather, in far too long a way, and uh, rather laborious way, is simply this, that by the early years of the 21st century, a new vision of the brain had taken shape. The brain was a mutable brain whose characteristics were predictable and manageable, was open to its milieu, it was transformed by experience, it was affected by and affected all that passed through it, often in ways that were not available to consciousness. It was shaped and shaping those experiences, those feelings, those intentions, those cognitions of the person within which it resides. And this, although in many ways uh, work that focused on the development of pathology was actually an extremely hopeful vision uh, of the brain because it was linked to arguments that by understanding the brain and intervening on its environmental uh, milieu, you could transform it through strategies of intervention. <clears throat> right, now let me try and put that together with a new way of thinking about mental life in the metropolis, or what we might call uh, neuro-urbanicity. So I put on this slide a quote from Sandro Galea and his colleagues, who point out that there are a growing number of studies that demonstrate the link between the urban environment and mental health, but in particular, there's been an increase in work that sought to understand the mechanisms underlying these observations, an emerging interest in identifying biological explanations that may clarify the link between features of the urban environment and individual mental health. Their way of thinking about it, that is Galea and his colleagues, uh, builds on those arguments that I very briefly uh, referred to a moment ago from epigenetics. They point out that um, for about 100 years we've known that there are higher risks of mental disorder amongst persons living in urban rather than rural areas, that that's been charted out by epidemiology, these associations, these correlations, but now there is a possibility to understand the mechanism, 
and their mechanism is that DNA methylation, that is to say epigenetics, could indeed explain the link between individual exposure to adversity and the development of mental illness. Social and environmental stressors, such as concentrated disadvantage experienced by all individuals living in a particular urban environment, manifest as individual-level psychopathology. There is little doubt, they say, that some neurobiological processes must ultimately mediate this relation. And what they did here in this particular study was that they, uh, 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 their subjects were residents in a particular neighborhood of Detroit, uh, they looked at, they did uh, sampling of genomic sampling, and they identified distinct epigenetic patterns, distinct methylation profiles in residents who'd been assaulted or who met the criteria for PTSD. There was a linear relationship between the number of assaults and these profiles, and they argued, quote, cumulative traumatic burden may leave a molecular footprint in those with PTSD. But they don't conclude that with a pessimistic message, even beyond explanation, they say, the emerging evidence about the reversibility of DNA methylation offers particular promise. Population science must contend with the challenge of how we can translate observations about the social environmental determination of health into tractable interventions. Here's the other, perhaps the most uh, uh, well-publicized kind of argument uh, made by Andreas Meyer-Lindenberg and his, uh, his group. And what uh, Andreas Meyer-Lindenberg and his group demonstrate is that stress processing in adults is fundamentally shaped by whether or not they have been brought up in an urban environment. That is to say, if you look at the brain mechanisms that individuals use to process stress, those brain mechanisms are heavily determined by whether or not they have been brought up in an urban or a rural environment. Those brought up in urban environments process stress in very different ways than those brought up in rural environments. So somehow the form of upbringing shapes the way in which an inhabitant of an urban space uh, manages their stress. Um, and they begin to chart out exactly where, and I won't go into the details of this argument here, exactly where in the brain these stress-related uh, challenges in, in, in stress processing actually uh, 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 inhabit. And they argue, quotes, we hope that the partial neglect of social environmental risk factors in psychiatric neuroscience is coming to an end. An active integration of genetic and environmental research is crucial. And they begin to map out a process involving a genuine multidisciplinary effort in order to understand how one can grasp the complexity of the social and environmental determinants of mental illness. <clears throat> a new generation of studies is warranted, they say, that combine the acquisition of neuroimaging and biomarker data with experience-based assessment, mobile neuropsychological testing, and tracking of subjects in spatially and socially well-defined real contexts. 
interesting here that although they refer to a number of disciplines that can assist them in that labor, uh, molecular genetics, epidemiology, social psychology, and neuroscience, they make no reference whatsoever to the potential contribution of sociology or anthropology in this endeavor. <clears throat> so this is the kind of argument that's beginning to emerge. And that argument sees stress as the ubiquitous translation device between urban living and mental life. This is uh, from a paper in Nature by Alison Abbott called Stress in the City. And if you look at this little cartoon here, you can see here is the person relaxed in urban space. There they are annoyed, they are irritated, they are lonely, etc., etc. So stress is the mechanism that mediates the objective and the subjective in trying to account for these patterns of pathology across urban existence. Well, that's been a very rapid uh, Cook's tour, just, I hope, giving you some kind of general impression of the work that's going on. Um, and given that I've uh, suggested that there is scope here for a new conversation, the key question that arises is how should those of us in the social and human sciences uh, respond to these developments? And I think there are a number of ways in which we might respond to these developments which link uh, to some problems with the way in which these relationships are currently understood. Ways of responding which are beyond critique, that is to say which see in these new attempts to look at how things get under the skin, see a genuine possibility for a real conversation that can address something which is a challenge to, to us all. Perhaps the first thing that uh, one might ask in relation to these kinds of uh, uh, arguments is what exactly is, quote, the environment? If you look at the studies of schizophrenia, many of the studies of mental illness in the city focus on schizophrenia. You see that schizophrenia is associated with a whole range of things that are seen as environmental factors. Cannabis use, air pollution, migration, winter birth. Even within a single study, such as that by Sandra Galea, whose work I, th I think is very good, uh, the stressors include community violence, secondhand smoke, and air pollution, all of which are grouped as environmental toxins. Uh, for Maya Lindenberg, it's disintegration of family networks, it's tightened competition, it's discrimination. In other words, a whole variety of very distinct phenomena are gathered together with very little distinction of the forms of experience which they might entail or the forms of life within which they're embodied. And as I've said, the all-purpose mediator between the urban and the mental is that charming, old-fashioned, capacious notion of stress, which serves to bridge the objective and the subjective, to link crowds, noise, strangers, family breakdown, discrimination, poverty, racism, violence, and so forth, to, into, the, uh, into the space of the brain itself. Of course, we know that stress, whatever that might be, creates hormonal and physiological changes and can have consequences, therefore. So there are some plausible mechanisms here. 
But what's missing in all these analyses is what one might call, to use another charming old-fashioned notion, mental life itself. Thoughts, beliefs, desires, intentions, experiences which are coded or shaped by means of language and culture. Now, before any of the neuroscientists in the room or Andreas Meyer-Lindenberg, who I've discussed this uh, with on some occasions, starts accusing one of uh, sociological hand-waving here, uh, perhaps we can look at the work of perhaps the, the person who's got the most claim to be the founder of social neuroscience called uh, John Cacioppo. Uh, John Cacioppo has uh, done some extremely interesting work on loneliness. Loneliness in cities and in other environments can be correlated with a whole range of pathologies. But the interesting thing about Cacioppo's work on loneliness is that his work on loneliness is not about loneliness in terms of simply the number of contacts which you might have. It's about whether or not you perceive yourself as lonely, whether or not you perceive yourself as isolated. This research, Cacioppo says, shows how the subjective sense of social isolation or loneliness uniquely disrupts our perceptions, behavior, and physiology, becoming a trap that not only reinforces isolation, but can lead to early death. Well, as soon as we see the entry into the explanatory form of the subjective sense of social isolation, we begin to see that all those factors which are aggregated together under social stressors do not work in and of themselves. They only work insofar as they are understood, they are coded, they are believed, and they lead to a kind of subjective sense. And if there isn't an invitation there for the social and cultural sciences to begin to think about how that happens, I don't know what it is. Secondly, what conception of personhood is involved here? It's clear that these ways of thinking about the person involve some kind of direct relationship between environmental stress and the brain. As I've said, there's not much mediation of mental life here in these processes. So I think another thing, another area, which is uh, a potential research uh, area for collaboration, is be to begin to think about the topography of the person that is taking shape in these new ways of thinking. It's certainly clear that there's no space here for the Freudian unconscious, but there's also no space really for the romance of humanism. These are resolutely materialist ontologies of the human that are taking shape. Mind is what brain does. Mind is what brain does. Now, there's one way of dealing with that mind is what brain does argument, which is through critique to argue that is fundamentally reductionist and individualist. But perhaps, just perhaps, we need to take this new way of thinking about the architecture or the topography of the person seriously. Most, many social scientists didn't have much uh, trouble with assimilating psychoanalytic notions of the unconscious into their explanatory forms. They were perfectly willing to accept that the way in which biography was inscribed in the human shaped processes which were before and below the level of consciousness. 
And yet, most in the social sciences seem rather hostile to these new ways of thinking about the pre-conscious or the non-conscious determinants of human conduct that are shaped, that are, that are being understood in the new neurosciences. And perhaps, just perhaps, there's a new way of thinking here about the relationship between the organism and the milieu that we should begin to take seriously. I've already mentioned the popularity of affect theory. Affect theory feeds off the neurosciences, but does not engage with them in a serious empirical manner around specific kinds of problems. There's certainly a bandwagon around uh, uh, taking up those kinds of arguments, but I want to argue that there's a more serious critical relationship that's possible. And lastly, what is the city? Well, the city for Henry Mayhew looked a little bit like that, Mayhew's London. That's the image of the city that Mayhew was talking about. The city uh, for uh, uh, Benjamin looked a little bit like this, Berlin around 1900, Paris around 1900. The city for Sandro Galea and his colleagues looks a little bit like this. This is Detroit. That's Pudong, that's Shanghai, that's Mumbai. So what exactly is the city? Again, I think here is a place where a kind of uh, ethnographic and anthropolog anthropological and a sociological imagination is absolutely central if we're to move to understand how the lives of so many people living in these incredibly diverse urban environments are being shaped by, uh, by that experience of urban life. Finally, of course, it's worth mentioning that there is an experience of the city beyond pathogenesis beyond its downsides, beyond its anxieties, its fears, and the pathologies of body and mind, the excitements of the urban, the pleasures of the crowd, the sanctuary of anonymity, the delights of speed and noise. So if we're going to map mental life in the metropolis and not simply mental ill health in the metropolis, we need to have a new concern with what one might call the local biologies of the new city. So what, or so what? Um, now some critics have argued that all this that I've gone through in rather laborious fashion over the last 58 minutes is uh, just uh, providing a kind of hypothesized mechanism to understand phenomena that sociologists and anthropologists have already understood at other scales and that there's really no need and no gain in thinking about these things in terms of the sculpting of vitality itself by its immersion in a milieu. I said at the very beginning that um, I kind of associated myself with uh, some remarks of uh, 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 Didier Fassin, the French anthropologist, um, in, uh, in, in a paper and a book, uh, but the paper is called Another Politics of Life is Possible. Uh, and Fassin uh, argues that we should take seriously what he calls life as such, 
and I quote, life as the course of events which occurs from birth to death, which can be shortened by political or structural violence, which can be prolonged by health and social policies, which gives place to cultural interpretations and moral decisions, which may be told or written, life which is lived through a body, not just through cells, and as a society, not only as species. So I think we do need a new politics of life, a reshaping of our imaginary, a, one, a way of thinking in which the social life of the city and the molecular life of the body become mutually entangled, and a way of thinking about that that goes beyond abstract speculation and sees how you can make that work within empirical research into the distribution of suffering, of restoration, and care. I know, and I think many of us know why there's been so much hostility from sociology in particular to biological explanations. Anthropology's been more hospitable. We can think about Margaret Locke's work on local biologies, the embodiment of a historicized biology. Some are already reframing that in terms of epigenetics, but these arguments have rarely fared back into the truth discourses of the life sciences themselves. And I think there's time for a more radical challenge which would indeed try and feed those arguments back into the heartland of the life sciences. Perhaps indeed generating a new way of thinking about the biological itself, a new ontology of the vital organism. And I've just put down here the Margaret Locke, um, Georges Canguiem, and uh, Kurt Goldstein, which for those who know might indicate the uh, uh, the dimensions of this new way of thinking. To conclude, um, a year or so ago, there was an editorial in the magazine Nature under the title Life Stresses. It said, it's time for sociologists and biologists to bury the hatchet and cooperate to study the effects of environmental stress on how people behave. Sociologists have been studying human environments for decades and have tallied the social damage that stresses such as poverty or child abuse can cause. Biologists are now in a position to benefit from their insights, although they will need to learn the language of sociology. And sociologists stand to benefit from the understandings that biology will bring to their own. This editorial in Nature recognizes that the causes of these kinds of social damages have been charted for over a century by social scientists, and now there is an opportunity to work with biologists to really understand how those mechanisms might operate. I said, standing here a couple of years ago, exactly that a new relationship was re required beyond commentary and critique if the social and human sciences are to revitalize themselves for the 21st century. I don't think it's easy. I know that there are many, many structural, financial, and institutional challenges, as well as those of epistemology, of experimental design, of forms of explanation, and indeed of, uh, of uh, disciplinary culture. But I do think uh, that if we are going to have a revitalized social and human sciences in the 21st century, uh, those are the dangers that we need to face. 
and uh, repeating my thanks to Des Fitzgerald, Ilana Singh, the Urban Brain Lab, and my wonderful Department of Social Science, Health and Medicine at King's College London. Thank you for your attention. Uh, okay, we've got uh, 15 minutes for questions. So if people could be succinct, I would really appreciate it. I'm a bit confused about the title of the talk, Mental Life in the Metropolis, because I mean, what you're saying, <clears throat> I mean, I don't, I think biology obviously can be internalized, etc., but I don't think it's necessarily city bound. Surely it's a question of your situation. <clears throat> if you, um, you know, if you're totally poverty-stricken, you're obviously going to be very stressed. You know, if you can't make ends meet, it's not a question of living in the city. You could be living in a rural area. In a rural area, you can be totally isolated. In a city, you can be totally isolated. <clears throat> so I really do think it depends on your circumstances rather than where you live in. So, so the argument begins from uh, an empirical observation. And the empirical observation is that urban uh, life is correlated with, very high, with much higher incidence of certain uh, psychiatric disorders and of other kinds of, uh, of, uh, of issues that we might think of as disturbances of the vital organism of the human. Uh, and so the question is how those are to be accounted for. Now, I have absolutely no doubt that uh, living in a rural area in, uh, contains its own stresses. Um, and that's why I say that we need to be much clearer about what it is in the so-called environment that shapes these, uh, shapes these fundamental processes and gets under the skin. Uh, what I've been trying to suggest to you is not that mental life in the metropolis exhausts the problem space here, but it provides an important empirical uh, uh, problem domain in which one can begin to work out these relationships, as well as, well as one that has some rather immediate and pressing social and political consequences if we are concerned with the distribution of social suffering. And at a time when more than 50% of the world's population lives in these urban environments, it seems to me to be not a trivial matter to try and understand how that relationship works. A presentation. I just had a question uh, in relation to your definition of the brain. You talk about the definition of the city, what is a city, but I wonder what is the brain? And if you've uh, included some of the work on somaesthetics or the thinking body, thinking through the body, the cognitive body, and to what extent the embodiment principle is incorporated into your approach, rather than, of course, taking from the great work within neuroscience, but a lot of other work around the role of the cognitive body and somaesthetics. Abs absolutely. Um, so. In talking about the architecture of the person, and I was trying to wrap up at that point, um, the, the, the fact that brains are in bodies and that bodies are in environments and that bodies are in social relations with one another is absolutely central. And um, I, just to, in, in shorthand then to sort of indicate the kind of way I'm thinking, um, uh, um, 
Elizabeth Wilson's work on uh, gut feminism, the brain in the gut, pointing out that uh, uh, the most uh, innovated part of the human body, apart from uh, that which is inside the skull, is in the gut, uh, that the gut is in constant sort of interchange with its environment. So absolutely, the brain, and, and this I think is one of the uh, one of the challenges that one wants to bring to bear upon these neuroscientists, which is to get them to recognize brains are in bodies and bodies are in relations with one another. I do think there are some developments within the neurosciences that enable one to do that. Um, so I don't think that one is, in a sense, arguing against a closed door here. I think the, my colleagues in neurosciences might argue that their concern with stressors absolutely recognizes the existence of the brain within a body since stressors operate via hormonal influences, etc., etc., etc. So they would say that, that that is why stress uh, 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 is, an, is the ideal mediator. Um, my, my argument with that is not that stress is not an ideal mediator, but that the stress is such a capacious, uh, undefinable uh, concept that it enables one to get away from actually beginning to try and characterize what it is in, these, in the experience of the human in its environment that is actually crucial in mediating these relationships. Mm. I have a bit of an abstract question, and I know that you're trying to stay empirical, but um, so for the last three years I've been working on a project on trying to understand the situational factors that underpin the use of torture in security organisations. And one of, one of the problems that I've come across, and it's, it has a parallel with the work that you're doing, is how to talk about causality. So I noticed that the two verbs that you tended to use were shaping and causing. And I've, I've found that when you're trying to understand a range of situational factors at a number of levels, at cultural levels, economic levels, material levels, the language of causality is just not sufficiently complex. And so I've, I've been trying to use language like um, conditioning factors, enabling, facilitating, motivating, creating opportunities for. And I just wanted to know whether you've also, have you been thinking about different ways of talking about causality so that we don't structure the relationships in a linear way but we, we allow for multiple dynamics of causality and just how you're trying to make sense of that in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a very um, uh, key question. Uh, I am interested in causality uh, because I am interested in mechanism. So to be interested in causality is to be interested in mechanism. Um, it's possible to be interested in causality and mechanism and recognize complexity, recognize interaction, recognize the, con the constant transactional relations between the, 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 the interior and the exterior, the media interior and the media exterior. It's possible to try and characterize those. I have a problem with complexity. Um, many years ago, when I was a Marxist, uh, when we had a difficulties in uh, characterizing how one thing was linked to another thing, uh, we said that the relationship was dialectical. 
dialectics uh, in that sense was in most cases a sign of explanatory failure. Um, and I think sometimes, point, I'm not saying that that's what you're doing, sometimes pointing to complexity is exactly that sign of explanatory failure. I would want to characterize all those things that you have spoken about and try and explore the way in which they engaged with one another, the circuits through which they worked. Complexity, I think, is something which is, uh, I mean, it is unbelievably challenging at all kinds of levels. I'm, I'm involved, I'll just say this very quickly, I'm involved, as, 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 as Catherine said at the beginning, I'm involved with the Human Brain Project. Um, one of the things the Human Brain Project is trying to do is to move from a detailed molecular characterization of each neuron to understand how things emerge in terms of the connections between hundreds, thousands, millions and millions of neurons in constantly changing circuits, that's complexity in, a, in an incredibly challenging way, and yet it's something which one seeks to characterize. So you're absolutely right that I've, in my shorthand I've talked about causality uh, in a much too simple way, um, and I'd like to have a better language but in a language that was still more precise than that of complexity. <clears throat> um, thanks very much for an interesting talk over here. Hi. Oh, there you are. Um, okay. My question is about um, urbanicity. And a lot of what you talked about to do with Zimmel and the metropolis and mental life and the Chicago school is about modern cities. And I guess I want to ask more about, I guess, for use of one term, postmodern cities, so suburbia. And I guess I'm interested in how much of this idea of cities being a negative environment or a bad environment, uh, how much of that is about the modern suburban sprawl and the social isolation that results from the exurbia, the exopolis, that kind of thing? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think talking of the city is a shorthand and, a, and a, um, a misleading shorthand because what one wants to do is to begin to characterize this incredibly diverse uh, milieu that all uh, inhabit the, 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 the territory of the city. You know, the slums in, the slums in Mumbai or the favelas in, in Rio or those, uh, those tower blocks in Pudong in Shanghai which are growing like Japanese knotweed, hundreds of them in very close proximity. What can the life be like? What kind of life, what kind of experience can there be there? And then, yes, to characterize what happens in rural environments. The only thing, this goes back to the question that, the, uh, that I was asked right at the very beginning. From my point of view, there, there is a double function in trying to do this. And I guess the, uh, the, the first function is because those questions of urban life and, mental, and mentality and, and psychiatric disorder seem to me to be highly salient ones. But the second is to see whether or not this is a potential experimental site for trying to generate that conversation. And to be honest, that conversation for me, the possibility of that conversation across the disciplinary divides is, is as important and probably the most important stake that's here. What we're planning to do, just to tell you very, very quickly, in, a, in a, uh, about two or three weeks' time, is to take about 15 neuroscientists and about 15 social scientists to lock them in a room together for two or three days and to ask them to think whether or not they can get beyond the notion of stress in understanding that relationship, to just try and get a conversation going. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, there's one time for one more question. Uh, okay. Um 
I was very interested in the uh, disciplinary uh, rivalries and, and uh, that you're trying to overcome. I wondered the discipline of psychology and how, mu how much psychologists have taken an interest in this kind of work. Um, but also, you seem to deal rather carelessly, it seemed to me, with depth psychology, where um, you know, a great deal of work, of course, is done in, on the growing individual and the uh, development of uh, orientations in the world, and, and with anthropology, where you have totally different cultural realms, uh, where people grow up with entirely different kinds of experiences from either uh, the rural or the urban? Um, I tried not to deal in any great detail with, uh, with depth psychology, but uh, I, mean, I rushed over this rather too quickly, I think, to characterize the image of the person that is taking shape within these new forms of neuroscientific argument and to argue that perhaps we shouldn't dismiss these new images of the person that are taking shape. Um, our philosophers like to dismiss these images of the person because they argue that so much neuroscience attributes to brains things that only could properly be attributed to persons. But I think there are some rather interesting things happening here in this materialist ontology. Um, and indeed, one might even look back to, to Freud and Freud's project for a scientific psychology to see the way in which Freud himself argued that his, uh, um, uh, his metapsychology was a kind of intermediate, um, uh, 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 um, intermediate way of thinking until we had understood in sufficient detail the, the neurological basis, as he would put it, of the processes that he's trying to characterize. So I'm, I'm interested in not dismissing those uh, materialistic arguments, but trying to embrace them and understand how they work. As for the anthropological, I think you are absolutely right. Um, and, I th and, and that's why I referred very briefly, far too briefly at the end, to Margaret Locke. I think the anthropologists have been much more embracing of these biological explanations, thinking of the way in which culture shapes biology and biology shapes culture, in which, in, in, t in terms of, uh, of, of Margaret Locke's work in particular, her argument about local biologists, but there are many, many other anthropological arguments that one could look at that refuse that uh, division between the biological and the cultural. And maybe I'm pushing at an open door here. Maybe everybody is quite happy to see those relationships between the biological and the cultural and to rehabilitate the kind of vitalism that was around in the late 19th and early 20th century, in which case I'm, I'm kind of delighted. Okay, I think we'll leave it at that. Can we please thank the people?